come on a journey with a cinephile. everybody to episode number 23 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always your tour guide david garrett jr here and on this episode this is going to be centennial club number six as there is another dr jekyll and mr hyde film from 1920 and i'm going to be covering that here as well as the other featured review is going to be extraordinary a horror comedy that is from a few different countries but mostly from ireland and the united kingdom and this will also be the last centennial club episode as i've watched all of 1920s films that i could find and then on top of that i have three mini reviews of species three cry of the banshee and omen three the final conflict so what i'm going to go ahead and do though is Before I get into any of these reviews, I'm going to send you over to a musical break before I get into those reviews. Enjoy. Something is 
right, something's going on, whatever it is, I feel it in my bones, I think that I'm changing the night when I sleep, I think that I'm losing my control to the beast, I can feel the burning inside of me, the evil side of me trying to get free, no, I have to fight it, have to hold it down, can't change right here in front of this crowd, what do I do now, nowhere to run, I can tell by the pain that it's already begun, Mr. Hot has won over me, dear God, the fruit is To hold me back, but now's the time Drink, release the beast inside Show what you hide review of this week it is going to be species 3 this came out in 2004 this was directed by brad turner this was written by ben ripley and based off of characters from dennis feldman it stars robin dunn robert knepper and sonny mabry this is a horror sci-fi film from the united states this is currently sitting on a 4.2 on imdb and a 1.8 on letterboxd with the synopsis being as her species decays succumbing to infections and illnesses an alien seductress immunologically stronger becomes only hope for them to live on now i want to start off saying that i remember seeing the original when it hit the movie channels and i remember liking it i still enjoy it until this day even though i'm going to be honest i know it's not the best movie it's just one of those things i think i just have a little bit of nostalgia for it it's not great but still a solid movie with a solid premise the follow-up was all right but i stepped down i didn't realize that there was a third one until after college and i had picked up the dvd i had never actually watched it though until now and just to give a little bit of background information this one picks up right where the last one left off and before we get to that actually it starts off with a conspiracy theorist calling into a radio show to talk about aliens and then as i was saying it shifts over to the site where eve who natasha henstrich came back to, to play briefly this role as she is dying it turns out though she's pregnant and gives birth to a little girl the government is there to take her body and have it disposed of as the program is being shut down also in the vehicle is one of the male children that were offspring from the astronaut and things take a turn though when the driver who is knepper decides to take the new baby home and steals it from this military convoy and it turns out he's a doctor and a professor at a local university and his name is dr abbott and one of his students is dean who is robin dunn he has a project to create a fusion reactor and while giving a tour in the power plant where it's housed and this causes him to be late to dr abbott's class now there's some talk about his funding being cut and his project being shut down so that's when dr abbott asks him to help as he is trying to do an experiment of his own and they are going to try and create another being as the little baby that he took much like the other aliens has grown very quickly and grows up to be sunny mabry and she is looking to continue on with 
the species so they don't die out but the problem is that some of the half breed offspring that have survived are coming down with illnesses from normal things like dust and pollen and they're also trying to find a way to keep their species from dying out and so they're seeking the little girl is was named sarah by dr abbott so the problem is they have to try to keep her alive as she's being attacked by these other half-breeds while also trying to figure out a way to continue the species from dying out. Now, even though there's a little bit more to the story, that's where I'm going to leave it as I don't really want to go into spoilers. The problem, though, is that there's not a lot really being told in the story, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. That's not to say that I hated everything about this, though, either. I really like where this is taking on almost a War of the Worlds type vibe. When this first gets introduced in Dr. Abbott's office, I thought it was kind of stupid. The more that I thought about it though, the more I actually liked the idea that as a hybrid, they would have to take on flaws from the weaker human DNA, so it does make sense. On top of that, in the first two movies, none of the offspring really live that long, so we're here though, we actually get to see that. Something else I didn't mind about this movie is that it's based in science without going too deep into it where it would hurt the movie, in that they couldn't fully explain everything. I like that they're not really violating any continuity and actually continuing on the story. I do think there are some plot holes though. Like for one, how would Dr. Abbott know and be able to infiltrate the military like he did? I also don't really think that it makes a lot of sense for these half-breeds to be as smart as they are or to have the money that they do. This comes prevalent with one of them who is Amelia, who is portrayed by Amelia Cook. And if you end up checking this out, you'll see exactly what I mean. I can understand why we don't delve into that. It, but it also seems slightly problematic to me. The last thing to cover with the story is that I like Sarah and how intelligent that she is. Dr. Abbott is raising her so you have a scientist that's helping as well as Dean who is coming over to help as well. But I like that the idea that she can just pick up a book and absorb the information contained with it. Being that she's an alien species, this is something they're establishing and it works for me. I do think there's something here that could be played with. I even like that this does think to benefit here so she could continue on with her species what i mean by that is that she will use her sexuality as a weapon when it needs to be but she's also extremely smart as well now i do have to say moving this over to the pacing this movie goes on for way too long i said what i could have been included into the story to make some of the things make a bit more sense but this already has a runtime of an hour and 52 minutes the movie really didn't hold my interest so a runtime like that just made it really drag I'll get into the acting here in a minute, but that didn't help either. I just wasn't a fan of the ending that they went with. There's a little thing with it that makes sense and allows me to kind of give it somewhat of a pass, but regardless, I thought it was just meh overall if I'm going to be perfectly honest. Now as I was saying for the acting, I thought it was mediocre. Done seemed to be used a lot in movies like this in the earlier 2000s when they had college students or like even older high school students. I'm just not overall impressed by him and the script probably doesn't help. He's not horrible, I just don't buy his performance. Knepper is a guy who I really liked in the show Prison Break. His performance is one of the better ones in this movie to be honest, but that's not saying a whole lot. Mabry is gorgeous and I think she plays the role of this alien very well. She needs to be wooden and she fit that for sure. The same could be said with Cook as well and we get to see both of them nude and I think that's partially why they were casted. Both are beautiful so that helps but there's just a bit of misogynistic feel there to be honest in just capitalizing on the fact that they could show the nudity. The rest of the cast was alright but no one really stood out to me either. Now something I've been waiting to cover here were the effects. I was ready for them to just be bad, as this looked like a sci-fi movie 
to start off with and then i ended up figuring out this was made by the sci-fi channel they just did a more r-rated or unrated cut that was on the dvd and then showed this with all of that stuff cut out for tv and to be honest they weren't all that bad though there are some practical effects with people in alien suits which were fine some of the CGI worked for me, but there's just really some bad CGI here as well, but not really as bad as I was expecting to be honest. The cinematography is fine and we do get some effects when looking through the eyes of the alien that I thought was a decent touch as well. So now with that said, this is the third movie in a series that I'm not entirely sure they thought they would, you know, make anything more than probably the first one. There are some interesting aspects of the story as they try to explain the alien species more and they do so without necessarily violating continuity in my eyes. I do feel that this movie runs a bit too long while focusing on some things that really just didn't hold my attention. The acting was decent at best, with the nudity really being one of the bright spots, which isn't necessarily a good thing. The effects were hit or miss and the soundtrack really just fit for what was needed without standing out to be honest. I have to say this is a below average movie if I'm going to be honest though. Just slightly below being average but not enough really to carry it over for me. So my rating on this movie is going to be a 4.5 out of 10. And for my second mini review of this episode is going to be Cry of the Banshee. This is from 1970. This was directed by Gordon Hessler. This comes from a story from Tim Kelly, who also co-wrote the screenplay with Christopher Wicking. This stars Vincent Price, Essie Pearson, and Hilary Heath. This is a horror movie from the United Kingdom. This is sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being in 1500s England, a cruel witch-hunting magistrate who often tortures innocent villagers for his entertainment runs afoul of a witch. This is a movie that I actually first heard about in the horror movie encyclopedia that I'm working through. The only other time was on the podcast Under the Stairs where Duncan McLeish was doing one of his side shows of Chronicle, which that focused on British folk horror, and this was one of the episodes that was on there. Now, I did alter the synopsis that was listed on the IMDb as I felt that it went a little bit spoiler heavy. And as I was reading through it, I remembered the text that is displayed at the beginning of this movie. There's a quote from Edgar Allan Poe, which I think was kind of just there to capitalize on the success of earlier Roger Corman adaptations that Vincent Price starred in. The other text though is at the end of the opening credits that this is a time where people are between Christianity and more pagan beliefs, with those in power and fear that witchcraft could actually be real. Now, Vincent Price is Lord Edward Whittam, who is a magistrate in this rural area, and he is the head of some of these witch trials, which we kind of get the idea that he doesn't necessarily believe in that, as there's a moment where a man claims that there is a bewitched dog that is killing livestock in the area, and he claims that it's just a dog that is rabid. But he does use this as he enjoys seeing people be tortured, and I also think he uses this as gain for those that are opposed to him, as well as to further his own financial standing. Now in this movie though, he ends up coming upon a coven of witches that are led by Ona, who is Elizabeth Bergner, and they interrupt her ritual, and most of the coven is killed, but she is allowed to leave as a warning to stop her ways, but instead she calls upon a creature known as a banshee to punish Lord Edward by killing those that he loves. Now I'll admit, I didn't come in as blind as I normally like to, but I don't think that hurt my viewing of this movie. I'm pretty new to this subgenre of these period piece witch hunt type films, but I do really dig the concept. What is terrifying is that they really happened 
And it is completely horrible to think that these people used to do this. As an atheist, it is things like this that have pushed me into the beliefs that I have now, and that we really aren't that much different from the ways of thinking in the past. We just go, don't go about it like we used to, or at least if we do, we do it more in secret. To shift this slightly, we have an interesting take on this whole idea. Lord Edward comes out and says very early on that he doesn't believe they're actually witches. We're still seeing people convicted on very little evidence, and at times, even if you just didn't like someone, you could accuse them of being a witch and it would ruin their lives. Conversely, when the men claims that the wild dog that has been killing his sheep is bewitched, as I said, Lord Edward shuts this down, but the dog is just mad. He really uses his witch hunt for his gains, as he enjoys torturing people and gets pleasure from it, and to continue to control the people who are against him. It isn't until that supernatural things that start happening and are getting closer to him does he start to change his beliefs. Father Tom doesn't believe in it either, which I found interesting as many times the priests were right there in the believing that there are witches in the area, and Father Tom is portrayed by Marshall Jones in this movie. Now, this movie also does have a supernatural element to it. Normally, movies like this, there are no witches, and that is how this one actually starts off. It's when they introduce Una and her coven that I was pretty shocked. We get an interesting thing that happens here, though. We get to see that the creature they're summoning might not actually be a creature. This makes me think that this is more of the idea of the werewolf mythos. Started as people couldn't believe a man could commit crimes as they were finding it, so they're assuming that it had to be a man-beast that was committing them. You could almost see that happening here as well, especially since we're getting the howling that sounds more like a wolf. The movie makes you think it's a creature with how things play out, but I could also see another explanation here that the creature is usually kind of kept in the shadows, so it could be that these people are seeing this as a creature, but that's not actually the case of what is going on. Now I want to shift this over to the pacing of the film, which I do think is a bit slow. It is surprising that with a 91 minute runtime, that the movie still kind of drug for me. I did hear that there were production problems where the director, Hessler, didn't get along with Price, so I'm wondering if that is part of why this feels that way. My other reason is that it takes almost half the movie for them to get to the encounter with Una, and that's where it picks up. I'm wondering if they took too long to set things up to pad the time. I did like seeing how this played out, and I was just uncomfortable with things that Lord Edward and his son, Sean, who was portrayed by Stephen Chase, were doing to others. Now, speaking of the characters, I thought the acting was good across the board. This isn't Price's best role, and it does feel like his heart might not have been in it, but I think this is a different take on movies that he had been doing in the same subgenre. So that's not to say he's bad. I just think his performance still works for me, and it was, you know, good for what was needed. Pearson is fine in the small role that she has. I do enjoy seeing her descend into madness with everything that is going on around her. Heath, who is his daughter Maureen Whitman of Hillary Heath, that is, was good and she plays well with Harry Whitman who is her brother in the movie who was portrayed by Carl Rigg and she also has interactions with Roderick who is portrayed by Patrick Mower and I thought that it was good because they're in love with each other but it's probably forbidden as I think Roderick they say at one point is a gypsy so this causes her to tell lies to her father which is interesting you know for good fearing people. Now as for Stephen Chase, I liked his performance in a way that I like villains. He's a scoundrel and I love seeing him get his just punishment in this movie. And then I would also say that Elizabeth Bergner, Patrick Mower, Victoria Fairbrother who plays the person who's accused of being a witch and a heretic in the very beginning, as well as Marshall Jones were all solid. They helped to round this movie out with the rest of the cast. Now the final thing I would go over would be the effects of this movie. We really don't get a lot, but it isn't necessarily a, that type of movie. 
The rituals that are done don't necessarily show you how things would actually play out, which I think is interesting because it almost makes you wonder if maybe that's not what is really happening. The blood in the movie looked pretty real, and there's not a whole lot of it to be honest. The interesting thing is the creature in the movie. They keep it in the shadows, and I'm wondering if this was to hide the effect, or was it to play up that there might not actually be a creature? It is thought to be a banshee, but this could just be, you know, using the mythology behind it. I'm not really up on what a banshee is, to be honest, but it does feel more like a werewolf. I probably need to look more into this, but I liked it still. The rest of the cinematography I thought was done well overall. Now, with that said, this movie has quite a few things that I do enjoy in the subgenre. It's an interesting take on something that has happened, you know, in world history and plays on the supernatural with a twist. I like that this is making the witches out to be the good people as Lord Edward and his family are being punished. The movie is a bit slow, if I'm honest. The acting was pretty solid across the board, and I thought the effects worked for what was needed. The soundtrack didn't necessarily stand out, but it also didn't hurt the movie, in my opinion. Overall, I would say this is an above-average movie. And definitely one that I will check out again. And I came in here with a 7 out of 10. And for my final mini review of this week, it's going to be The Omen 3, The Final Conflict. This comes from 1981. This is directed by Graham Baker. It is written by Andrew Birkin, but comes from characters from David Seltzer. It stars Sam Neill, Rosano Brazzi, and Don Gordon. This is a horror film and a co-production from the United Kingdom and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.6 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, the now adult Antichrist plots to eliminate his future divine opponent while a cabal of monks plan to stop him. Now, this was another film that I'm pretty sure I saw only once and that was in college, but I used to remember seeing the VHS case at the video store all the time and it always intrigued me, but for whatever reason I never saw it. And I think a lot of it could have been, I didn't know if I was old enough to fully appreciate it, and I never saw the original two which weren't at the video store for whatever reason, so I think I just kind of avoided it for that. Now just to kind of get you up to speed, we pick up in what I'm assuming is 1981, the Daggers of Medigo are found and end up at an auction. A man purchases them and it ends up at the monastery from the first film where they come into possession of Di Carlo, who is Brazi. And along with a group of monks, they go about trying to figure out a way to stop the Antichrist. Now, Damien Thorne is an adult, has taken over his uncle's company and is portrayed by Sam Neill. We get to kind of get a feel of him and his personal secretary, who is Harvey Dean, who is portrayed by Don Gordon. And that's the same. Damien knows that he's the Antichrist, and Harvey knows as well the truth of his leader, and he states that he's about to be made the ambassador uh, for the United States and England. Now, Harvey asks what's going to happen to the current one, and we get to see that play out. And then the main thing here is that Damien wants to kill the rebirth of Jesus Christ, as this is supposed to be the second coming. And what he does is places himself to be back in England where the child is supposed to be born and goes about trying to kill every male child that is born between a certain time on a certain day. As the as the stars align the same time or the same way that they did when Jesus was born. And so that is the reasoning behind what he's planning to do. And this is all coupled though with a television interviewer in the United Kingdom named Kate Reynolds and she's portrayed by Lisa Harrow. As she starts to be interested in Damien as well as her son Peter who is portrayed by Barnaby Holm as he gets pretty entranced with what this man is trying to do and they're trying to stop the Antichrist before he stops the savior of the human race. Now I'm not gonna lie 
I was telling my girlfriend what this is about, and I thought it was fitting that I would watch this the day before Easter with the subject matter. And if you know anything about me, I'm all about horror films that are basing themselves in religion. To reiterate, though, I'm an atheist, but I love mythology. And not to offend anyone, but that is how I look at Christianity, especially since many of its stories align with mythology that has come across different religions. I bring that information up in this previous thing here as I like when they're taking this story. Damien in the previous film learns that he's the Antichrist and goes about reading into what that entails. By the time of this, he is fully bought in and I like that. He's the villain in the original and the second one in the way that people are trying to destroy him so he's preserving himself. And it seems like he has outside forces helping. Here though, he's the villain for sure and he wants people to do horrible things to prevent his demise which includes the murdering of a bunch of babies. I love how dark this goes. There's a slight problem here with how the deaths happen in the previous two films. And I don't know if he needs someone to actually fulfill them for that. And now it seems like they did it for convenience and making it more difficult here for the tension. As why doesn't he just use the same force that he's been using all of these years growing up to kind of do these type of things. Now going from this though, I still love that they aren't violating much continuity from the previous film. Just building more on the story that has been presented. Also bringing something back yet again is the idea that we have a skeptical character being asked to believe and to help, and I love what they do with this character being rational despite the evidence. If someone came to me with this information, I'd have trouble believing them as well. Kate is an investigative reporter of sorts. She needs to see some real evidence, which becomes problematic when dealing with religion or the supernatural. It is there, and when her son starts to buy into what Damien is saying, that it raises the stakes even more. Now I want to take us to the pacing of the film, which I thought this is the longest of the three if I'm correct here. I actually didn't really mind it though, as there's quite a bit of moving parts to get us to the conclusion. Earlier I stated that they don't violate continuity, which I will get back to in just a second. This movie paces out the death, uh, deaths of the monks, as well as the babies that they're trying to stop him, and this causes Damien to collect the daggers of Medigo. How he can be defeated though isn't the same as what happens at the end of this movie as from what they sedate in earlier movies. Now this is slightly problematic in my opinion, not enough to ruin the movie though. This one also has an uplifting ending, which I don't always love. There's not much more you can build on here for a fourth sequel, which is why it took them until the 1990s to do so. And I think that was a straight to video one. And I mean, going from that as well, I know that one's considered, you know, by far the worst one. And from what I remember, it is. So it also kind of makes sense as to the only thing that they could kind of play off from that point on. Now, what I really wanted to talk about here would be the acting. I'll come out and say it that I'm a big fan of Neil. My first encounter with him was Jurassic Park and then I believe Event Horizon. And since then, I've seen him in quite a few more things and I've not really seen anything bad that he's done. I love his take on Damien and that it feels like he's a wolf in sheep's skin. He seems so nice, but then we see he's a horrible person on the inside when he's in the privacy where nobody can see him. He's extremely charismatic, which is perfect for a politician that he ends up becoming, so I can see someone like him rising to power, and I'm just gonna say take a look at the United States currently if you don't believe me. Brazi I thought was also good as the wise old sage who's trying to prevent Damien from reigning. Gordon I think actually has one of the best performances. When I realized that he knows about Damien, I thought that was cool. And even more so though when he's faced with killing his own child for his leader or to do what is right. Haro was good as the character that needs to figure out the truth and making everything more complicated. That her son also kind of becomes a Hitler youth in that he's ratting out people and kind of being almost like a SS type character where they're looking for people that are trying to defy the leader. And it's even scarier is that I haven't brought this up yet is that 
There are a ton of people who secretly follow Damien, and we get to see a scene where he is talking to all of them, and it's actually kind of unnerving. And then from there, I would say that Holm, Mason Adams, who portrays the president, and Luin Willoughby, who is Harvey Dean's wife, are all good, along with the rest of the cast, to round this out for what was needed. Now, that'll take me over to the effects, which I actually didn't have a lot of them in this movie, and I didn't have any problems with them either. I would say of the three, this is probably the best of the bunch, even though we don't have a lot of iconic deaths, So There's really just a scene where the three stars align as they do in the Bible, but we get to see that happening through Damien having a vision, so I'm fine with what they do there. There's something at the end that I found to be slightly cheesy, but not enough to ruin things. There is, though, a great effect with a baby that just looked amazing. The cinematography, I thought, was also fine. Now, the last thing to cover would be the soundtrack, which I was a little bit disappointed that they went away from you using the chorus-style Latin singing. They started off with it, but I don't really remember it after, like, the first 15 to 20 minutes. And I was a bit bummed, as that is normally off-putting and unsettling. I would say that the soundtrack still fit for what was needed, though. Now, with that said, I'm glad that I've given this original trilogy a rewatch after all these years. They're interesting movies with a lot to delve into. I like where Neil takes the character of Damien now that he fully knows who he is and what he's doing here. There's a lot to delve into with the movie with the religious aspects, for sure. Even though this is the longest of the three, I think that it still needs that so it can flesh out what they're going for. There are some slight problems I have with including the soundtrack. The effects were solid and the rest of the acting was good. I would have to say that I think this is an above average movie for sure. You can watch this alone as it does give you enough of the backstory to enjoy it, but I recommend it as a series so you can get the full story of what got Damien where he is. And I would even say that if you like really solid story driven movies, even if you're not a horror fan, I would recommend this one. Now my rating here is gonna be a 7.5 out of 10. And I did watch a couple other movies that are non-genre, so I'm not really going to go into those, but they both were pretty solid in my opinion in their own rights. But what I'm going to go ahead and do now is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review.
And for my first featured review of this episode, it will be Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1920. Now, before you question if I've already done this one, there were actually two that came out this same year. And this one is directed by J. Charles Hayden, who also wrote the screenplay for it. And it is based on the novel from Robert Louis Stevenson. It stars Sheldon Lewis, Alex Shannon, and Dora Mills Adams. This is a drama horror sci-fi film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.3 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being Dr. Henry Jekyll experiments with scientific means of revealing the hidden dark side of man and releases a murderer from within himself. Now, I didn't know this one existed and actually got really confused as this is the same year that the John Barrymore version came out. It was through some research that I discovered it and I was glad to see that I could watch this on Amazon Prime as this will be the last episode of this season's Centennial Club. Much as the synopsis states, we have Dr. Jekyll, who is portrayed by Sheldon Lewis, who runs a hospital for the poor. He looks up to his mentor, Dr. Lanyon, who is portrayed by Alex Shannon. He's married to Mrs. Lanyon, who is portrayed by Dora Mills Adams, and they're looking over their niece, who goes by the name of Bernice, Gladys Fields. She's engaged to be married to Dr. Jekyll, but her patience is wearing thin as he's always showing up late or sometimes not at all to the plans that they have made problem is that he's engrossed in his work. He has a child in his hospital that is in a coma, but still alive. This makes him question if people have souls, and it doesn't make sense to him that she can be on the edge of being dead while still being alive. This deduction really doesn't make sense, but I rolled with the idea for you know a movie that is you know 100 years old now. He is so wrapped up in what he's doing, he misses another date with Bernice, but this is the last straw. She breaks off the engagement and is going to be wed to her childhood friend who is Danvers Carew, portrayed by Leslie Austin. This depression causes Dr. Jekyll to create an elixir that will be able to bring out the bad side within him, as that is what he deduces that everybody has a good and bad side, and that even though he's so good, that there could be this evil side to him. Now this causes him to become Mr. Hyde, who is also portrayed by Lewis, an uglier and evil version of himself. Dr. Jekyll sets him up with a place to live, and no longer having Bernice, Dr. Jekyll decides to indulge in becoming Hyde, who wants to seek revenge for everything that has happened to Jekyll. Now that's all I really wanted to go to for the story here, as this movie is only runs 40 minutes according to IMDb, and the cut that I saw ran an hour long, so there's not really a whole lot to the story, and we do get quite a bit of Hyde running amok. I should lead off my analysis of the movie though with that this is difficult to hold things against this version and it is one of the earlier ones. Now with that out of the way, this one does something different from other versions that I will compare it to. Now I would have to say, I did find this to be slightly problematic with how Jekyll gets the idea to indulge himself, but I like the changes it makes for what Hyde does. What I mean by those last few statements is that he decides to explore this due to the questioning of if people have souls or not. That makes sense for a man of science. I just don't understand the leap to the good and evil aspect. Now, this is a hallmark of the story from Stevenson, so it makes sense to have it here. That's something that I really like, and I also like that incorporating Hyde is getting revenge for what happened to Jekyll, even though it is his own fault. As humans, though, we don't always like to take ownership for our actions, and I think that's a little bit of an allegory that we're getting here with the idea of Jekyll and Hyde being that obviously Hyde being the darker desires of man, 
where Jekyll really isn't taking ownership that these are desires that he's harboring deep down inside of him. Now, he didn't really want to indulge in them until he started using the elixir, but once he gets a taste of it, it's kind of open in Pandora's box and you cannot go back. And this movie has quite a bit of scenes where Hyde is really just running amok across the city and... I mean, there are the cops are really looking after him, and that kind of makes some interesting things that happen later in the film. And actually going from that, in this movie, we really get to see Jekyll and Hyde having to answer for their crimes. Other versions have something similar to this, and people realizing that they're one and the same. This one does it in a different conclusion and still holds Jekyll accountable as they realize the truth while they have him in custody. I happen to enjoy this and how the movie ends, to be honest. Especially because the more he indulges in it, the more he realizes that he can't really control it and can't really go back now that he it goes to the adage of you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. This movie, as I was saying earlier, is credited with being 40 minutes long, but the version I watched is about an hour. I do think, for the most part, this is paced fine, as I was never bored. If anything, I think they should have added even more like 10 minutes to really flesh out my issue with the early story of how to get to the idea of figuring out the duality of man. I think with that, this could have come up even higher with the rating that I'm already going to give to this, as it's hard to fault a movie too much, as we're still in early cinema, and I mean, there's movies that came out... 10 years after this that have a little bit less story than this does so this does handle it a little bit better than some i've seen after the fact as for the acting here i thought it was good we really follow lewis for the most part and i thought he does a good job as jekyll and hyde this is a tough role especially when you don't have sound to convey the difference between the two and to really kind of play up the inner thoughts or the way that they kind of respond back to people but i think he does a fine job in this respect no one else in the cast really stood out to me, but I think they just fit and they round this out for what they need as everybody's really just here in support of Lewis. Being that this is an early film, there's not much to the cinematography. The version I watched really hadn't been cleaned up all that much. But again, these movies from this year can play with filters where this one really doesn't do that. They also didn't attempt to do a transformation scene with Hyde or going back to Jekyll. I'm betting they really didn't know how to do it. So they elected to avoid even trying where the first time it cuts away and he's already back or he's already in the form of Hyde. And then we really just do jump cuts from that point on while the transition is being made. Now there is one point where we do cut back and forth to see Hyde as he's transforming. So we get to see different I guess levels of it where he's still part Hyde, still part Jackal type thing. Just not the greatest. And I mean, the other version of this film did much better in that respect. It is a shame with what others from the year were doing, as I'm saying. As I like to give, give the movie some credit. I did like what they did with the title cards. As they would use drawings of their takes on Hyde or other things that are referencing back to the story. I thought that was a little bit decent touch there to kind of add its own little flair. Now, the last thing to cover would be the soundtrack. But much like other silent films, it is hard to know if this is the actual music that they had in mind to sync up with what we're seeing. I do feel that the score they used worked. It wasn't great, but it didn't really stand out to me though either. But it also didn't take me out of what they're trying to do. And it doesn't necessarily build tension though either. It just seemed to fit in my opinion, just something that'll be very forgettable. So now with that said, this version does seem to have an interesting take on the source material. And that is something I can appreciate. I do think there's a bit missing from it, though, to really put it all together and really stand out. It wasn't boring, which is good. I thought the acting worked for what they needed. The soundtrack wasn't great, but I thought it fit the feel of the movie overall. Not the best version of this I've seen, but it's better than some of the others I've seen previously, to be honest. And some of these have much more 
budget and things that they can work with being how much later in time that they came out. So with that said, I still think this is above average movie in my opinion. I will warn you, this is a silent film from 1920, so keep that in mind before coming in to see it. But my rating here is still going to be a 7 out of 10. And if you've kind of gathered, this movie doesn't really delve too much into anything, especially just being early cinema. So I'm not going to do a spoiler section here. But what I am going to do is send you over to the trailer for my second featured review. Why don't we see ghosts every day? Ugh, leave me alone. Most hauntings are so small, they go unnoticed. Hi, this is Rose's driving school. Maybe you could have a chat with my daughter, just to find out what's up with her. My name is Martin. Oh, Jesus, Mary and Joseph! Martin, she's floating! She's floating, Martin! I know. What is evil? <laughs> I'm doing an incantation. Now! Hear me, powers of the night. The blood moon is nigh. This bloody moon better make me bloody rich. Yes. This is a satanic ritual. Satanists. I woke up in the morning. To break the spell, we need ectoplasm. You just have to let the ghost inhabit your body. Like in Ghostbusters. Oh, I haven't read that. Just the plot thicken. Why does it have to be so unnecessarily gross? That magic! Aha! Uh -huh. Your girl's got something. Quick. second featured review it will be extraordinary from 2019 but it is getting its wide release here in 2020 in the united states this is directed by mike aaron and edna logman this is also they both also co-wrote this with additional writing done by damian fox and mauve higgins this movie also stars higgins along with barry ward and will forte this is a comedy fantasy horror film from Ireland, Belgium, Finland, and the United Kingdom. This is currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd. With its synopsis being Rose, a mostly sweet and lonely Irish driving instructor must use her supernatural talents to save the daughter of Martin from a supernatural incident. Now, I decided to doctor the synopsis here a little bit because I do feel that the IMDb one is a little bit spoiler heavy. And I'll kind of get into what they were alluding to, but I wanted to save that a little bit for my recap. Now, this is one that I kept seeing the trailer which, as it was being shown at the Gateway Film Center, and I was intrigued to check it out. Now, my girlfriend Jamie was also interested in seeing this, so whenever she is, I'm always excited to have somebody to see something with me, especially here in the horror genre. Now, with the shutdown due to COVID-19, this movie didn't get its full release at the Film Center as it's closed. But as a member, they were offering this to be seen online for a fee that goes back to the center. So one night when I got this email, I decided that we were going to check this out. 
Now, much as I was saying, this movie does play its hand pretty early, but I still doctored the synopsis. Now, this movie is giving us an old-looking video that is documentary style from Vincent Dooley, who is Restard Cooper. He was an expert on the paranormal and made a VHS tape series. We get to see that he's passed away, though, and that Rose is his daughter, as she is portrayed by Higgins. She is harboring the guilt for what happened to him and is claimed that she slaughtered him. Now, she has a sister who is named Sailor, who is portrayed by Terry Chandler, tries to convince her that it wasn't her fault as she has been doing this for some time, you know, blaming herself. And I should also point out here, Sailor is quite pregnant. Rose, is, as the synopsis states, is a driving instructor, and when she gets home, she checks her messages on her mobile phone as it seems that she has an ability similar to her father, but she's refusing to use it since what's happened to him. There's also a room in her house that is locked off, and she doesn't go into it. She's also, as the synopsis stated, quite lonely. Now, there's also Martin Martin, who lives with his daughter, Sarah. Now, Martin is portrayed by Barry Ward and his daughter by Emma Coleman. His wife and her mother has passed away, but she's still haunting them. And it's kind of funny as this plays out in that she is still giving him recommendations of things that need to be done, as well as quite controlling. So that hasn't stopped in her death. Sarah wants her father to contact Rose to help exercise their problem as it is affecting their lives and Sarah can't take it anymore. To complicate this even more, there's Christian Winter, who is Will Forte. Back in the 90s, he had a popular song, but he was only a one-hit wonder. He's trying to recapture that popularity and along with his wife, Claudia, who is Claudia O'Dotri, they have moved to Ireland and is planning to do a ritual to make a pact with a demon to reclaim that fame. And I did end up realizing that through some trivia that I guess there was a mass exodus of similar type singers that they could move to Ireland where there was tax breaks. So that's what they're playing on here as a little bit of a joke. But then to complicate things, Claudia does something that causes the virgin that he's going to sacrifice to explode. He needs to find another one and this brings him to Sarah. Now the reason for this is that he needs her for a ritual that will be on the following night on the Blood Moon. Martin first reached out to Rose, who informs him that she doesn't do this type of stuff anymore. She takes a liking to him though, as she feels that they had a connection, so ends up feeling obligated to help when Sarah goes into a coma, but is floating above her bed. She unlocks the room in her house and gathers up materials, as it appears they need the ectoplasm of six ghosts in order to save Sarah, but Christian is on to them as well. So for me, coming into this movie, I knew this was going to be a horror comedy, and this is pretty much hit or miss for me if you've followed any of my other reviews for, you know, movies like this. This one, I'm not going to lie, though, had me laughing out loud at different parts. We had an interesting concept here. Without necessarily spoiling what happens, Rose feels guilty to what happened to her father, and she thinks she's the one to blame. They do show us what happened eventually, and I'm glad that they did. It is hard to blame her for what happened as Vincent probably shouldn't be putting this amount of pressure on a teen like he does. I do like that this gets addressed with Rose, and she can finally face down this kind of demon that has been following her for some time. Another aspect of this is Martin. He's a pushover. His wife clearly wore the pants in their relationship, and even though she's dead, she won't let him go. Even Sarah doesn't show him the most respect, and is pushing him to do something about their haunting. So I like that we establish that he's a pushover. I did like this angle here as this needs to be overcome as well as giving up the guilt that he is living with as how she ends up passing away. It's also pretty comical to be honest. His performance is amazing for the climax as he has a similar ability to that of Vincent. So the two of them pair up well and 
they both need to overcome their past guilt in order to become the people that they are. And there's a really kind of awkward scene that his daughter has to witness during all of this that I did think was pretty funny as well. Now, the last kind of aspect of characters is Christian along with his wife. I love that he got a taste of fame, but it was short-lived. He doesn't really seem to be that confident himself or really even have a fallback plan. So I like that explanation of why he's turning to evil here as he's almost in a way taking the easy way out, but also not for the things that they have to do in order to get that fame back. And it's kind of funny is that he is the villain, but he's not the most villainous character. And I think casting Forte in this plays well as he is pretty hilarious to me at times. And I like where this ends up going in the final sequence for the climax. Before moving on, I did want to go over the comedy and some cool things with the ritual. I think that being this movie is from overseas, not all of the jokes landed with me, but quite a bit of them did. And this even kind of plays with the pacing. I never got bored, but I do think that their time frame makes it a bit rough and kind of moves things a little bit too rapidly as they kind of run out of time. What happens to Sarah is the day before, and I understand why they did it that way. And that leaves most of what they have to do on the final day. I just never really felt like the ending would be in peril. And a lot of that is that it's also a comedy. What I did really like is the demon that is being summoned in this movie is Astaroth. I don't feel like that's a major spoiler as you know what he's trying to do. It's crazy that that's the name of the demon because recently I've watched the Gollum from 1920, which that's the demon they summon there, as well as over on the podcast Under the Stairs, I participated in their movie club where To the Devil, A Daughter, all within the last two months. So it's crazy that I've watched, you know, three movies now that are featuring the same demon. This movie, as I said, is a comedy, is a bit outrageous, but that works for me. I also like incorporating the old VHS footage from Vincent to help explain things. I thought that was kind of a clever way to do it without just, I mean, he is reciting it to us, but we are seeing things from that movie play out, or we're using that as voiceover to things that we're seeing in the present. To shift this over to the acting, I thought that was on point. Higgins I felt bad for, as she really does seem lonely, but she cracked me up with some of the things that she said. There's a scene from the trailer that is in the movie, and I've been quoting it ever since I finally watched this, as it's completely hilarious with an old woman that she thinks is a ghost. There's also a gag referencing The Exorcist, and her reaction was funny. I won't give it completely away, but she is hitting plot points that you'll get from that movie, and then somebody asks her something about it, and she is completely confused, and I thought that was pretty great. Ward is good as her male counterpart. He's timid, and I think that works for the growth he needs for the end. Forte plays his villain so funny to the point where it's both hard to believe and is on point, and it's almost hard to hate him, even though what he's doing isn't good. His wife brings some levity as she really doesn't get everything that is happening. She's just really kind of a gold digger that is there for the easy life. And Forte doesn't seem to mind it all that much, but they kind of just play well off each other. Although the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed, as many of them do bring some humor to it as well. As for the effects, this can be tough when you're doing things with ghosts. I think this movie is quite strategic though, as we don't really get to see them. We get to see things moving or people being hit by them as it added a sense of realism there. I also like the explanation that there could be ghosts all around us doing the littlest things without us realizing. I thought that was a good touch because there's times where I can't find like a pencil or a pen that I know I set somewhere and it almost makes me feel uneasy that that could be what is happening there. The demon in this movie is CGI but it is a small part so I can overlook it. I thought the movie was shot very well and they used the framing to their advantage quite a bit. The last thing to cover would be the soundtrack, which overall just fit for what they needed in my opinion. 
there are two songs that really stuck with me. There's this one that's where in the chorus they talk about black magic, and I know that is used over the credits here. Kind of want to add it to my playlist. The other one was used in the trailer, and I think it fits the vibe of the movie as well as helping the scene that it is accompanying. I thought the song that made Christian popular was hilarious to where Jamie and I have been singing it back and forth to each other. And the funny thing is there's really only a chorus that is used, so it makes it even better. So with that said, even though this is a horror comedy are really hit or miss for me, I thought this one works. The concept is interesting, and I think the story has some depth to it. I think the acting really helps to bring this to life, as does the depth of the characters that they're building towards. What happens really feels real. I do think that the pacing is hurt slightly with how little time is given, but it doesn't ruin the movie. The effects were solid across the board, and I thought the soundtrack worked for what was needed. I would say that this is a movie that is just good overall, and really just a fun one. Not for all ages, but it's still a solid horror comedy for adults. And just a couple pieces of trivia before I close this out is what I was talking about earlier is Christian Winter was influenced by a bunch of celebrities who moved to Ireland in the 80s and 90s to avoid taxes. There's, according to the cast, neither Higgins, who is Rose, or Odotri, who is Claudia, can actually drive in real life. Ironically, both Forte and Ward, whose characters both take driving lessons in the film, can. And then the last thing would be the first time that Martin expels ectoplasm, Rose collects it in a MacGuffin's brand candle jar. In fiction, a MacGuffin is, of course, an object that is necessary to the plot and the motivation of the characters, but insignificant or unimportant in itself. Just something I would toss in there. And my rating here is going to be an 8 out of 10. Now, I don't really want to delve into a spoiler section, as I don't feel that there's, I guess, all that deeper things that I could delve into. I think everything I've kind of gone over would be enough. So, outside of a spoiler section where I'm just ruining the movie, I don't think we need that. It just plays on some funny things, in my opinion. So, what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you to one last musical break before I close out the show. And it's 
I want to thank you all for listening to episode number 23 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. To just do my normal way of closing out the show, if you want to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you want to read any of the written reviews on this episode or any of the past episodes or any of my other reviews that I've done, that's Reviews of the Dead at horrorreview.webnode.com. If you want to add me on Facebook and talk to me on there, it is David Michigan Garrett Jr. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it is Buckeye from Mish. On Letterboxd, it's David OSU. Instagram, it's David OSU87. And now, since I've finished all of the 1920s horror films that I can watch that are not lost or anything, or there's no just copies anywhere out there that I could purchase or just watch online, what I'm going to go ahead and do is I was looking at 1930 to stick with the, you know, since we're in 2020, sticking with the years that ended zero. I was looking at 1930 is even more problematic than 1920, as I was only able to find one movie that is from that year. So what I'm thinking I'm going to go ahead and do is, since that was the only one, I will watch that for the next episode as one of as the featured review and then I will pair that up 2020 movie like I have been doing on the Centennial Club episodes and since I have episode number 25 coming up I will do something special there but I will kind of keep that under wraps until episode 24 comes out and that 1930s film that I know for sure that I can watch is the Bat Whispers but I will figure out what I'm going to pair that up with So just to close this out now officially, I hope whatever you do today goes great and you're having a wonderful time doing whatever that is. And this is David Garrett Jr. signing off.